everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. Oh, man, <laughs> this I'm laughing because Chris Torquia has such an amazing story. And, and I say that pretty much every time. And I know we all do. Quite frankly, we all do. But man, this guy is fascinating. And when you hear the journey, that's really fascinating. But his heartbeat is so beautiful. So Chris, here's here's the scenario. And this is probably one of the most fun setups that I can think of because you and your wife, Marina, who's Russian and you're Italian, <laughs> the fact that you have your cook-offs, you know, when she's doing Rus Russian food, you're the assistant. When you're doing Italian food, she's the assistant, but you're on a mission to go get spices. So you go to the European food mart, you gas up your car, and while you're there and you're going in and somebody sees you because you've been there before, they start talking about you and they say, hey, that's Chris Torquia. They don't realize that you can overhear everything that they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you, Chris? Hmm. Yeah, that's that is a good question. I think I would like them to say. He's somebody that listens and and cares about people um and has and has good priorities in his life understands that the order in which things should be in his life ooh good one that's nice. that's, true. that's true so chris before we jump in we'll give the listeners a quick uh quick background so chris is a let's let's say a molecular biologist turned technology ceo um and there's there's a big, big gap in between those two, but Chris is currently the CEO of Vigilante. And before we get into that, I want us to go back to your college years and and your cellular and molecular biology time. Tell us what your your vision for yourself was. Why were you studying that? What got your interest? Those types of things. Yeah. Uh, well, what kind of my interest was during high school? I I was taking. Um, my biology class, I think it was in ninth or 10th grade. And my biology teacher was just excellent, Mr. Jewett. And in fact, in retrospect, after I, after I got my, um, I, after I was published my research that I collected during my PhD candidacy, I called Mr. Jewett and I said, hey, I just want you to know, I think you were an excellent teacher. And, you know, this is what I'm doing right now. So, so he's really what, what got me interested. He put me up for certain extracurricular opportunities. I got to spend time with um, a, a company at the time it was called Gibco. The brand is still around. It's been bought by Life Technologies and then Life Technologies was bought by Thermo Fisher. So I was an intern there at, and in, in high school doing a cell, working in a cell culture lab. And I just found these experiences to be fascinating. Um, and so my vision. Yeah, I was going to say, so you, that that's what got you interested in it, but clearly enough to go on and, and study it and make that your your degree. What were what were you thinking your path was going to be at that time? I thought that I was going to. When I first got into graduate school, my path would have been um, earn and defend my Ph.D., work as a postdoc, and then I was uh, trying to choose between academia or working in biotech. You know, do you want the money or do you want the uh, 
you want to pursue the the science basically yeah really just comes down to how how good you look in a tweed jacket is that it decides which way you go there uh, exactly <laughs> i was teetering right on the edge i looked pretty good but not so great that they, that it was a no-brainer so at, after you graduated you mentioned these brands that then turned into life technology so this that was your first real experience right you spent about seven or eight years there um talk to us about what your experience there was yeah that's right so i was working as a uh, technical application scientist because in the biotech industry you have these you're making and releasing these products products are intended for scientists uh, so scientists are your are your users and uh just like any other product that's released by any other company uh sometimes the people just don't even understand how to use the product or they don't understand when they've used it in their experiments how to interpret results and so the company retained scientific staff that had understanding of laboratory procedures and uh, working knowledge of the products that the company was were releasing and so we were something like consultants to the uh, to the end users of the scientific equipment and reagents. And um, I actually found the experience, it was, it was interesting because there was always something new to learn. Um, but I, I, in retrospect, later realized that it wasn't a good role for me because it was very uh, people-focused, which sounds ridiculous because now I have my own company and I'm a CEO. So I've had to mature since then, obviously. But but I found it very draining to um, be the <laughs> at that time the public face of the company to the customer, which is exactly where I am now. Again, <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things, and I'll I'll Gary's normally the first one to go on a tangent. I'll be the first one today. Um, one of the things I I'm finding interesting is. You were deciding between academia or going into biotech, and then your first job in biotech was teaching, right? It's you being able to explain how a product works to the customers and things like that. It's obviously not direct teaching, but it's interesting that that's the skill set that was needed. And that was also the, the alternate career that you were thinking about. Did you have anything from your past experience, whether it was in high school or college or anything that led you in that direction? Were you around people that were teachers? Was there an experience you had? Well, I mentioned Mr. Jewett and I very much, oh. I very much appreciated him and, and what, and the encouragement that he was in my life when I was in college, when I, especially when I was in my PhD candidacy, which by the way, we'll, we'll get there because I never actually earned that PhD in the end, but um, I was a teaching assistant. So I was teaching undergraduate students and as well in my personal life, I was um, <laughs> at my church, I was a teacher of a Bible study of college students. So there was quite a bit of, of experience and exposure to, to teaching. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, sorry. Go, Gary. I was just going to say, man, I mean, I've got to go back to that question or the, the statement that you made about initially early on uh, and you're not an old guy now but you were younger then and uh you know th that thought and realization of oh man i really don't want to be the face and you know the people thing and yet you know here you are your ceo and you've got a fair amount of people in your company did 
did that fundamentally change within you or did you just learn to adapt and you are still not as much of a a people person you're more of a quiet and reserved person i'm just curious did something shift or did you just acclimate oh i think that that is a that is a very big subject um i think it's a combination of both i think so i i don't know there are these uh, what is it 12 or 14 personality tests that you can that you can take and the first time I had exposure to this concept, I was already in my second career working as a, a director of, of part of a development company. And they made everybody take that those personality tests. And I ended up being INTP, introverted person, perceptive, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, Inter- and, introversion. Uh, uh, let's see, N is... Intuition, I think. And, yeah. um, and then T would be thinking and P would be perceiving. Yeah, yeah. I think. There you go. So basically it it nailed me perfectly because my personality type was uh, the scientist. So it got me as a person that needs to be in a lab by myself. And it said, I'm not going to enjoy that. I don't enjoy having um, subordinates. And the only and, and the only reason that I would like to have subordinates is so that I don't have to do the things that I don't like to do. Somebody else can do them for me, and I can concentrate concentrate on my experiments and coming up with new ideas and all that. Yeah, and it was it was kind of a mind blowing moment because I'm like, wow, that 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 really explains why I found it difficult to work in that role that I was in, and. Mm. Um, why it is that that I generally consider myself to be a very lazy manager. <laughs> it's because it's because of that. Like I I I would like to delegate as much responsibility as I can, so that I can focus. I can be ungated and and come up with new ideas, find solutions to problems, and so on. So part of it was understanding that that in my natural state I'm going to be introverted which means that I need to be careful not to push myself too far but I think simply as you mature as a person um, you become more more balanced while that might be my default state I'm a lot more I am able to tolerate a lot more interactions with 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 people now. And so, so that's the adaptive part. And the second part was, um, at that time in my life, I really didn't have good priorities. And I, I mentioned one of the things that I would hope people would say about me is that I, I have like rightly ordered priorities in my life, because I think when your when your priorities, when your understanding of who who you are, what your purpose is. Um, what place should, in which position should family be, in which position should work be, and so on. It's it's very easy to get those things out of order, and when they are out of order, you can you can undervalue um, certain things. And in, in my in my particular case, I was undervaluing people, and I had to through through some painful life lessons need needed to reorient my priorities so that I I could be more loving towards people. And, and so that, that also has helped at the same time. 
part of a maturing process, I suppose, to put it simply. Yeah. So Gary, uh, it takes people through a lot of time, the the thrive wither, right? Where, what do you put in your thrive column? What makes you come alive versus the wither? And, and it's interesting that even though you had all these different teaching experiences, just even if you were really good at it doesn't mean that that's necessarily what made you come alive, right? If you found out years later, that was the reason that you struggled in, in that, that biotech job. It's, it's interesting how we have to differentiate right between what we're good at and what we're bad at versus what we actually enjoy doing versus not. So I want to skip around a bit and, and talk about in your, your CEO role now, how do you handle that in the day-to-day, right? Of saying, I want to be known as somebody that keeps their priorities aligned. How do you make sure that you're prioritizing the things that mean the most to you? Yeah. Well, one of the things we're trying to do is cultivate a culture where we might describe it. We sometimes describe it internally as to be humane to people. So the stereotype of the startup the tech startup company where everybody's just burning out constantly and you're 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 endlessly in crunch because you have to get out the next product and we don't do that we just don't do it um we make sure that people take all of their time off that's available for for the year or i mean you can't really force somebody to do that but we strongly encourage people if you have time off to take take it you need to be resting so the we make rest a value in the company. Um, I often say that I I value a lot the times when I'm bored, because when I'm bored, that's when I do my uh, come up with my best ideas, or I, I'm able better able to solve problems. So we emphasize this this concept of rest and and people taking their time off. We sometimes even people. <laughs> for better or for worse, there have been times when we're giving people just just take a month off, just rest, recuperate, come back, and you know we'll see you next month. So that's that's one way in in which it comes out in the company. Well, all right, listeners, <laughs> think about all the tech startups. If you know anybody that's done that road, um, that is an unusual. <laughs> Those are two unusual core values, being humane, because it's usually chasing like, you know, and it's not that everyone in the tech startup world is just chasing a buck. That's not it, because we've met a lot of people that that's not the thing. But there's a lot of pressure and you got to move fast and you're burning through money. And so the pressure is just high. And so the burnout is high. We have to go back through like that transition from. Mm-hmm. microbiology to vigilante. But I want to talk a little bit first about what vigilante is and your current thing. And then we'll 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 backtrack because that path is quite fascinating. So tell us a little bit about what vigilante and and plan A, all of those things are. Oh right. Yeah. So I guess it was back in 2010. I was working at the biotech company. Um, in my free time, I I enjoyed playing video games. I started learning at some point how to manipulate or modify video games. 
And I started interacting on these online forums, messaging boards with other people who were who were doing the same and exchanging information. And at that time, the and it probably still goes on today, but the, the defense industry was recruiting from these people because the, the defense industry noticed the utility of video games for military simulation and training purposes. And so at some point I, I met somebody from the defense industry who was looking at some of what I was doing as just as a hobby. And he said, you know, you're pretty good at this. You could be getting paid for it. You know, and then just like in the cartoons, the green little dollar signs appeared in my eyes. You mean somebody will give me money to do this? I love doing this. It's my hobby. You know, and I, I think I mentioned to you once before, Gary, I'll, I'll throw in the, the Rush Limbaugh reference. But I, I remember I would drive around in the car with my father and he would listen, listen to Rush because Rush was always right at that time. And uh, one of the things that he said always stood out to me. And, and if it's the only thing that stood out to me, I guess it's good. He said, if you want to get ahead in life, find a way to make money from your hobby. So I thought, hey, here's a good opportunity to put this into practice. So I I started a little DBA. It was just a, it was just doing business as vigilante at that time and um, cobbled together some of my online friends who I was, I was doing this type of thing with. And we've, we formed a little company and started landing some deals. Um, when you, when you started doing this, let's go pre DBA. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you start learning? Was it literally self-taught of like, I'm just going to go online and figure things out as I go? Were you doing it with people? What did that look like? Uh, a little bit of everything, but what it what it looked like in practice was me staying up all night by trial and error, brute force. Let me try this and see what happens then. And let me try that. And, you know, they say, what is this? The, you got to spend 10,000 hours doing something before you, I probably spent, 10,000 hours learning how to do this uh, spread across several many sleepless nights where my my wife was sleeping and I'm just sitting there in front of a computer until 3 a.m. you know tinkering with with video games and then I had to get up by eight to to get to work so that's what that looked like I can't do that anymore right. <laughs> yeah because you're also doing this while you have that full-time biotech job at the same time yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you started that, I think a few years before, uh, before leaving that biotech job, but you didn't leave that job to do vigilante full time, right? So talk about, talk about what, what took you over to the Czech Republic, because this is going to be a really interesting deep dive here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I sometimes think back and I wonder to myself, should I have just taken the leap sooner? The answer is, <laughs> the answer is maybe. Um, I was scared, basically. I, I was scared of giving up the security. So I had that uh, dilemma mm -hmm. that I was struggling with a lot. What brought me ultimately to the Czech Republic was essentially that I, I completely collapsed because as I just described, I described to you a situation where I was staying up all night, many nights in a row to learn how to do something. And then once I became successful at it and started selling my services for, by the way, just way too cheap, like a third of what I should have been, you know, because that's, that's a common mistake, I suppose. Yes. New, new it is very normal. 
um, and trying to do everything myself. And, and after a while, I just, I got burnt out. I was unfulfilled in my, I had already emotionally moved on from that job at the biotech company because I, I loved doing this other thing. And I wanted so badly to transition to that as my full-time job, but it just wasn't generating enough income because of the mistakes that I was making. So I was just spinning tires for a couple of years. And at some point I just couldn't do it any longer. I, I uh, burnt out anxiety, became depressed and and part of part of that had to do with the subject matter that I was dealing with insurgent mindset training so the the defense company that I I was doing work for they were creating something a product for insurgent mindset training which would be to help train the soldiers that would be going to fight in the war on terror um prepare them desensitize them from the violence that they would be experiencing prepare them for the sorts of things that they should be looking out for as they're searching through Afghan villages, blasting caps, copper platters, just I help help them identify certain things um, that people shouldn't have. <laughs> and if they do, they're probably the bad guys. Um, and that was a really heavy subject matter. It was, it, it was very graphic. We were watching those uh, jihadist propaganda videos, the, the all the head chopping stuff and those super graphic perverted uh, execution videos and and that had a harmful effect on my mental state at some point i was months without being able to sleep i developed significant anxiety symptoms because i was effectively traumatizing myself from you know, working on this subject matter and uh, i couldn't do it i just couldn't do it anymore so i had to make a decision i'm either going to um, let the business collapse, which basically did because I just couldn't work anymore. Um, but, but also my performance at my full-time job was, was suffering a great deal. And at some point, um, my, my largest client happened to be in the Czech Republic made me an offer. I said, well, you know, we have this new project. Would you consider coming over here and, uh, running a, a team for us being like the, the B2B manager like an outsourcing manager type type role we would call in the industry and it sounded like the perfect idea at the time i needed a fresh start uh, my wife is adventurous she moved from russia not not too many years earlier than this and the thought of going back to europe which she missed a great deal was was very appealing to her as well so we uh sold the house cars gave a bunch of stuff away and uh, moved off to the Czech Republic to start start a new life there. Did you did you have kids at that time or not yet? We were trying right around this time, uh, but but hadn't <laughs> hadn't succeeded. Then we decided to to pause it for a bit until we got resettled in the Czech Republic. Yeah. So so you make this move. You're almost at that flexion point of hey, do I try and figure out vigilante or do I do something else? This opportunity comes up. Um, what what's one of the things that you learned being immersed in in Europe and in another country? Because one of the things that, that we found really interesting on this podcast <laughs> is the exposure to different cultures, different ways of doing things. It's just yeah. immensely valuable. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's so many things. Some of them are funny. Some of 
I, I guess one of the first things that I I learned is um okay, so here's one that's that's a little bit maybe a little controversial to say. I moved to a country, I was in Prague, Czech Republic, and and I I finally was living in a country where um you actually had freedom of speech. Uh and I don't say that tongue in cheek. I, I really mean it. You you are now in a place where you can say and people want to know exactly what's on your mind. You can say it and nobody's going to get mad at you. They just accept, okay, that's your opinion and you're being honest with me. They can disagree with you, even strongly disagree with you, but it's it doesn't result. I mean, of course, if you have some kind of crazy extreme views, but it's not going to result in, in a break of the relationship, like where they don't want to, they can't talk to you or they fly off the handle or which is something sorely needed. So I found the European way of discussing even difficult and controversial subjects to be very appealing because I felt more able to express precisely what I believed and not worry about someone's going to try to take me out as a result. Um, just, just the ability to have a conversation. It, it results in a more honest interaction. People are... We're also, I, I found it, uh, I found out, I discovered that the American, the American script, as I call it, when you meet somebody, hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. And then you kind of go on your ways. And we, we have that conversation. We go through the, um, the script. So many times we barely notice it. And an anecdote I have about transitioning to Europe is you have to be careful, especially with work colleagues. Uh, if you ask them that question, they assume that you actually care about them and you really want to know how they're doing. And they will answer you honestly. I was at work one day. I said, hey, hey, um, John, Hansa, how are you doing? Uh, not good. I'm having problems, problems in my marriage. I think my wife is going to leave me. And it was stunning to me because it's, it, he wasn't a person that I knew very well. I, w I wouldn't think that he would, you know, ha share something so private with me. And uh, because I was expecting just to get the simple answer back. Good. How are you? And then you kind of get on with your day. And instead it was like, oh, you don't, yeah, you don't understand how this works. <laughs> you're just supposed to say I'm good. You don't say that you're like something's wrong. And, and that that's something that I realize that we do in, in American culture. Um. And then in business, what I notice is that people are much more direct. So it, it, in, we have an international team because I, I have employees in, in the Czech Republic as well for our, our other brand that faces the entertainment industry. And um, because of this international team, some of the managers are uh, American or North American and some are European. And sometimes the when the American managers are interacting with the European employees when when we say things like, well, I would suggest, or you might want to think about this, it's they, they don't take that as do this. When I say I, I suggest, it means I want you to do this. That's the that's how we understand it in, in the US. In Europe, they don't see it that way. You have to tell somebody, no, you're doing you're doing this wrong. You need to do it like that. You just have to be much more direct with people. Um, so that's that's something I had to learn. You just and, and then when I come back to the U.S. and then I take that European approach and try to apply it to American employees, people get we're getting flustered. So I had to remind myself that uh, 
I can't be so direct and I have to make suggestions once again. <laughs> um, so in your, your company now, do you talk with each side essentially, right? Of the, your European employees and your North American employees of that, that different culture and different mindset. And like, Hey, when you're interacting, you need to understand this is how they communicate. Uh, we try to, yes, when we spot some of those issues happening, we try to, to contextualize it culturally, um, to varying degrees of, we could be better at this. You know, we're, we're a growing company, uh, putting, building the plane as it's flying, as they say, sometimes we, it feels like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, we do try to provide that, that type of cultural, framing around some of the conversations. Um, a couple of the managers have recommended that we read uh, a book that talks about this. It was written by uh, a woman who has lived in, I forget how many dozen different countries and worked in all these places. And, and then she wrote a book summarizing the experience and how to interpret when an American says this, you should interpret it like this. And when you're, you know, and so on, Asian culture and Latin American culture, that, that's been helpful. Well, chat GBT4 will take care of all of that, won't it? Yeah, yeah. I've, we've actually been joking joking uh, a lot about that internally. In fact, we just did, went through a 360 review process in the company, and we encouraged anybody who felt slightly uncomfortable if English wasn't their primary language, we encouraged them to uh, use chat GPT <laughs> to, to, to sort of just... <laughs> smooth out the language and and all that and it it works they like it um and i was i was also joking like you know i think i think i could probably uh, of all the jobs in the company the easiest one to automate might be the executive jobs uh i ha- i have this hunch that ex- executives always want to automate the jobs of their subordinates but actually i think the easiest jobs to automate would be executive level could be wrong Maybe I'll try it. I don't know. Maybe my company will be run by AI someday. The the heartbeat and vision, though, that's something that I don't think artificial intelligence can replicate. Let's hope not. That's right. No. Let's no. hope not. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think it could, you know, we could be in Terminator <laughs> land before <laughs> we know it, um, which would be frightening. Um, so I, I want to go back and clarify just a little bit so raised in buffalo new york yeah you uh it's it, like yeah you're right go you say rush limbaugh in in the U- u.s and that's a controversial name i mean like which is really kind of crazy i had designers when i ran my first ad agency that they were they turned they turned me on to rush limbaugh which was so weird because in the <laughs> creative world that's just like just the opposite, you know, but anyway, that's how I got introduced to Rush Limbaugh. So you're doing that. You're going for your PhD in microbiology. You got this little side escape that turns into a side hustle, which is like, Hey, I can go into video games and I can actually reprogram stuff. And so you're, you're, then all of a sudden you're connecting with the U S government. They've got applications for what you do you sell your services for a third of the price because you don't know any better you're burning yourself out you get an offer you go to the czech republic you're married to a russian at the time so you go to the (laughs) czech republic and you're doing 
like art direction, right? I mean, it wasn't that part of the thing in video, right? Yeah, that's right. I my first job was art director on Daisy. It, it's a it was a at the time very popular zombie survival game. I transferred. I went from the defense industry working on various serious subject matter to a uh, survive the zombie apocalypse simulator. <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. You're learning all the cultural nuances and like, uh, you know, the landmines of like, oh, I didn't mean that. You know, I was just like thinking I was having a tertiary conversation. And now all of a sudden we've gone into a real deep dive. You're you're learning all that. There was also like. So when did this thing start kind of morphing back you know you had basically mothballed vigilante thought that it would just kind of collapse on itself but it's still like kind of percolating i guess right so there's something going on there and then you also <laughs> this is from the discussion at starbucks that we had <laughs> there's this little thing that you decided to do like hey um there's a whole lot of cheap electricity in russia uh crypto <laughs> Let's do yeah. some crypto money. So take us down that path. Oh man, um, yeah. Well, you know when you when you read my when you read my life resume back to me like that, I, I sit here and I think to myself, I, I wonder myself sometimes. Good lord, how did I get here? This was never none of this was ever part of the plan. And I think I've said to people before. I, sometimes it feels as if I'm living somebody else's dream. This was never. I remember I I was dating this girl once. And uh, she was she was from Europe. I, apparently, I have a type. I was dating an Italian an Italian woman. Uh, so that never mind. It's for a different podcast. Um, and she asked me, "Don't you want to go to Europe and see all the the history and everything there?" And I said, "No. Why? Why would I? It, I? I don't really care that much about history." Of course, my wife would smack me if she heard me say that now. I said, "If I want to go see mountains, we've got beautiful mountains in America. If I want to go to the beach, we have beautiful beaches. If I want to." Go to, you know, wherever, whatever I want to go and see, uh, we have it here. I don't want to go to Europe. These were words that came out of my mouth at some point in my life. Um, oh, my gosh. So to, to bring it back, how did that transition take place? Uh, part of the part of my responsibilities as the art director, Daisy, I mentioned that I was like a B2B, uh, an outsourcing manager. Um. The guys that were were working for me when I was when I had my vigil, vigilante DBA, they didn't really go away. Um, I actually put them to work on the new project, on the video game project. So they all kind of came with me. They didn't become employees of the company, but we we kept them around and kept them pretty busy as contractors. And here's mistake number two that I made um, because I was charging such low prices, I wasn't paying my guys well enough either. And once those guys got good at what they did, they went on to larger companies and better pay. And I basically trained them. And now they're, they're very successful people. We, I've stayed in touch with many of them after all these years. Occasionally, we've had opportunity to work, work together here and there. Um, but, you know, mistake number two, free, free advice number two, don't charge too low of prices. And don't pay too low of prices. You'll end up with eternally having um, junior staff. <clears throat> so 
we were working on uh, down a list of content for this uh, video game Daisy, and at some point we we got feature complete, which meant that there wasn't really anything more to do, and the project was still years away from release. And at this point, I realized, hey, I, it's best I start looking for for new horizons. So I started um, looking for other jobs, and I ended up finding serendipitously or fortunately or thankfully ended up finding uh, another open opportunity at this company's sister company which actually had a focus on on defense simulation and training so part of the company focuses on making entertainment products the other part training and simulation products for defense and it just so happened that during that week and it also happened to be the week when when my wife was uh, was due um, I was able to uh, secure a a job offer for turns out twice the pay, right at a time when we were going to be losing one you know one of the incomes from our home, which was great. And I I, I found that very I was very thankful. I, I was thanking God for that at that time. And here's a funny story: um, I was negotiating my salary in between contractions while my wife was in labor at the hospital. Don't do this. Free advice number three: do not. <laughs> Ask your wife <laughs> what if this is an acceptable salary when she's having contractions. In the hospital. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've made all oh, the mistakes. Man. I've made mistakes that you haven't even thought that you could make before. So, I'm I'm happy to pass this knowledge. <laughs> um. So okay, I, I need to focus. So, move over this to is this. So room. good though. <laughs> <laughs> move over to this new new role uh i'm back in the defense space S similar role it's kind of out outsourcing manager director over uh technology visual technology of the product and uh, the rendering technology as we would call it and uh, my guys come with me the same ones from the dba because guess what there's a ton of work to do and i'm the outsourcing manager still and i just put put my old guys to work on it and um, this is when things started really to accelerate. I, I, I guess the the volume of work increased to such the extent that I realized, like, hey, I need to get, I need to get serious and like get get this, these guys organized. Like, I need to start. I, need, I actually need to hire management staff, and I need to. It, it's becoming a company. So I approached at the time the uh, the CFO of the company. And I basically ask them, Hey, look, uh, this is how much business you're doing with my company every year. And I'm employed here. Why don't we do this together? Would you, would you consider investing in the company? And the answer was no, they just weren't, weren't, it, they weren't in a situation where they could take that risk on. They were up for sale and they just didn't want to do anything to, to threaten the sale. So the answer was no. Um, and at some point it just, became obvious that it was best to to part ways and and I say that nicely but ultimately I was fired <laughs> um if tax reasons it, it just came down to uh, it, it just was complicated I was an employee there and the the volume of business that they were doing with my company it was getting harder to justify people were asking questions and uh, and they fired me which was fine because that was the push out of the nest. When I when I said earlier, I often wondered why I never took the leap. It was because I was always afraid. And I continued to 
to be afraid, even though I saw the the revenue ramping up um, and and saw the the potential once again to go full time self employed. But I wanted to I wanted to share the risk. I wanted them to be investors. I wanted us to work on the company t- together, and they just weren't in the situation. And when they fired me, that was the push out of the nest. And I just had it was it was sink or swim. I just had to make it work. So talk about those next days, right? You get fired. You have this company that has this revenue, but you've never taken that leap before. Now you're forced into taking that leap. Talk through those next few days or months. Yeah. Um, it was pretty easy. In in my case, the reason was I had a pretty sweet uh, severance deal from, from getting fired, which supported me financially. And they were continued the volume of, of contracts. And actually it scaled up, like doubled. So it was just kind of easy. Uh, I also didn't mention along the way, the, the reason that we ended up with an entertainment brand is because along the way, um, one of my former colleagues at on day Z where I was working at the video game company, he went on and started his own company and doing a very similar thing, um, but focused on video games. So by the time I got pushed out of the nest, it made sense for us to team up once again, former colleague. Uh, we had worked together before. He had some business and some people. I had some business and some people. And uh, so we teamed up and we were off to the races. It was scary though, because it was right right at that time, I mentioned that my first child is when I moved from the first job to the second job. And then right when we were having our second child was when I got fired. So that was scary. I just thought if this doesn't work, I've got another child, I'm in a foreign country. I need to make sure that I, I need to make sure that I could get back home if I need to, <laughs> you know? So let's... I mean, man, you, you, we could call, I don't know that I could come up with a great title for your journey, but, you know, kind of the unexpected entrepreneur <laughs> would kind of fit because it, you know, in, in talking to you and hearing this today, it's not like you had this fire burning in your heart. Oh, hey, I'm going to go. I've got this entrepreneurial itch, you know, I'm going to just pay my dues here. That wasn't it at all. You you found yourself kind of accidentally getting moved into these directions that kind of fit you and were some of the stuff that was in your thrive zones, which, which I think is really interesting. So two parts to this question or kind of two questions. One is, so you mentioned the crypto mining thing. I we got to hear a little oh, bit yeah. about that. And <laughs> then the second question is is how did what what was the impetus in bringing you back and to Charlotte, North Carolina of all places because you were Buffalo, New York and we have a whole lot less snow <laughs> than than Buffalo. Uh very different environment. So talk us through those two things, the crypto mining excursion yeah. and 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 like there there's a journey there and then also the journey back into the united states which landed you in charlotte yeah sure well you know first i should i should say the entrepreneurial itch my father was definitely is an entrepreneur he's always coming up with ideas i think i got that from him so that that was there somehow in the background even though it maybe doesn't necessarily perfectly fit my personality 
the crypto mining stuff. Um, okay, so here's another thing that that I learned while I was in the Czech Republic. Czech Republic is is one of the I I dare to say it's one of the widest um, has some of the largest amounts of adoption per capita for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular. There are even uh, when I moved there years ago, there were several places sprinkled around the city where you could pay for your meal or for a beer with Bitcoin. Uh, there is uh, there is actually a community center there. And it's called the Parallelnipolis. It's uh, Latin. And it's named after a very powerful essay that was written by a Czech dissident during the, the communist times, uh, Vasklav Brinda. He was motivated. Oh, we're going off on a tangent. But basically, long story short, the, the Czech people are very libertarian as a result of, of their past experiences um, involving communism. Once they gained their freedom, they didn't simply turn to another form of government. What they actually wanted to do is fiercely maintain individual liberty, personal independence. So they gravita gravitated more towards uh, libertarianism, and they view things like Bitcoin as one uh, vector for doing so. The Parallel Polis started off as a 3D printing company they started paying all of their employees five years ago, seven years ago in Bitcoin only. And you can imagine those people are doing pretty well today. All their, all their employees ended up. So that, so 3d, their, their 3d printing business became secondary to their community outreach activities. And they're, and they're, um, they're, they're basically something like a think tank to promote these libertarian ideas. And so that, that's how I kind of got exposed to it from the direction of how it fits into the narrative of uh, maintaining your individual uh, liberty. And if you start going down the rabbit hole with Bitcoin, and it's for me, it's Bitcoin, not cryptocurrency. Uh, if you start going down that rabbit hole, you'll find people that are very philosophical about it. And they start asking questions like, what is money? And how how can you make you know make sure that you you are your own bank, and part of it is uh, involves mining and having your own nodes that you're operating so that you can you can validate your own transactions and all that. So this is how I got into it. How it ended up in Russia? Well, basically it was completely impractical for me to have Bitcoin mining rigs running in an apartment in the middle of Prague. They draw a lot of current. They're very hot. Air conditioning isn't really a thing uh, in, in much of Europe. Um, it's becoming more so, but regardless, um, some of the lowest energy prices are, are in Russia. And so had a signed a deal with a Swedish company that operates a data center there. And, uh, and we're, you know, that's how I started a Bitcoin mining company. It's a very small operation, but that's, that's, that was sort of the thinking and the motivation behind it. So um, what happened? Like, how is it still going? You know, Russia has had some, massive upheaval with you know the invasion of ukraine over a year ago etc like 
what's happening with that? And especially now we got to hear the, the next part of like, what was the impetus of coming back to the U S and why Charlotte? Mm-hmm. But I want to know like, what's happening with that? You know, has, has the Russian invasion and all that, has it changed? Yeah. So thankfully I was supposed to get uh, 12 machines sent to Russia after the third one came online. Um, the war in Ukraine started uh, the U.S. Treasury announced sanctions against Russia, and there was one and only one data center in all of Russia that ended up being sanctioned, and it was the one where I had my three machines located. So we fell under those uh, those sanctions, and any, any uh, equipment that was owned by U.S. citizens was subsequently seized by Russian FSB which is kind of like their CIA and FBI like smushed into one agency. So three of my three of my computers are are locked up by the FSB in a warehouse someplace. And that's been fun coordinating legal action in Russia to try to get them out um, along with s- several other US companies that were affected by this. Um again Never thought I'd get I'd have my have a company sanctioned, <laughs> but you know I guess that's part of the risk when you when you're doing business internationally and especially uh, in, in places like Russia the the environment is unpredictable. There contains there is of course a large potential up, upside and a huge potential downside. We learned our lesson. The next machines have all been uh, resettled in the U.S. or Canada. Which much higher energy prices. The company. Uh, that the Bitcoin mining company is struggling at the moment as a result of the uh, market market decline globally, um, but as well as the r- rising prices of of energy. So it's, it's tough, tough for for ruckus mining at the moment. Mm. Yeah, that's an important um, thing to note. There's always risk and reward, you know, in everything that we do, and entrepreneurs. Um, are particularly aware of that because they've if they've been around at all they've seen the risk and and felt the downside but they've also uh seen the reward many times not always uh the risks seems seem to have more stories on the risk side than than on the reward side um what was the like the impetus what what brought you back to to the US and why Charlotte in particular yeah well it was it was several factors. The two main factors. One was family related reasons. Our children were um, two children of ours. We have three now. Two were born in the Czech Republic. One of them was approaching school age, and the plan all along had been that we would transition back to the U.S. so that uh, by the time our oldest daughter would would be of school age, she'd be able to attend school. Um, at the same time. I, I saw an increasing demand from the U.S. defense sector. So the, the companies that I, the defense companies that I had been working with previously generally weren't U.S. companies, and I started experiencing more demand from U.S. companies. And U.S. defense companies have uh, certain regulations that require them to work only with U.S. persons in U, uh, 
in U.S. companies, and so it it started making business sense as well to transition back home, start hiring in the U.S. so that we could uh, be compliant with certain export regulations that that are governing the defense industry. And so you've got family in this area. Is that why Charlotte versus Buffalo? Charlotte was a decision made by pros and cons list. Um, I, I had, we, we were considering three different cities. One was Charlotte, next was Orlando, and after that was um, Austin for various reasons. Orlando is really where the defense industry is most uh, lo- localized. And most of my clients actually are there. I wanted to I wanted to find a place that was near Orlando because I didn't want to live in Orlando for anybody out there from Orlando. Don't take offense, but uh not yeah, yeah, it's Orlando. LeBron, LeBron came out and made a comment saying that if he got <laughs> to the magic, he was gonna retire. So I <laughs> person with that opinion. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so we wanted a place that's near Orlando, uh, still on the East Coast so that I could fly to Europe when I need to, uh, not too far from Buffalo, easy access to Buffalo so to go and visit family. Uh, we, we weren't really seriously considering Buffalo because you're starting, uh, you have a software development company that could be anywhere. Why would you locate it in New York? Um, just, you know, for right. sim- simply for tax reasons, like why on earth would you do that? So, so those were some of the main factors why we chose Charlotte. And um, yeah, actually, we live to the south on the South Carolina side, so I'm 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 not in the purple state. I'm in the I'm in the the red yeah. one. Yeah, and taxes are even lower in South Carolina, so you, you get the the best of both worlds. You have uh, an international airport that's pretty good and continuing yeah. to grow. And you have all the amenities of Charlotte. I'm I'm so glad that you chose Charlotte over Orlando, but especially Austin, Texas, because um, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is because we want to highlight, you know, people that are trying to do it right in Charlotte, because that entrepreneurial community, while it was around here when I left for the Great White North of Cleveland, Ohio in 2002, was here, it was not nearly as robust. And um, we've kind of been in the shadow of RTP and uh, Austin, Texas and Denver and some of the, and Silicon Valley, which, you know, it has its own craziness from a tax standpoint and everything else that's going on there in California. So, you know, I just think that it's pretty interesting that you chose Charlotte. I'm glad you did because I got to meet you. Um, and I think we need more um, you know, visionary entrepreneurs that are doing really cool things, which, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can't even probably talk about that you're doing on the defense side, but then you've got the entertainment side. I just think that's a very cool and unusual and anything but typical um, company, man. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for, for the kind words. Um, yeah, the... It it really makes for an interesting, just like uh, when I said I, I liked working in the biotech company because you're always learning something new. It's the same thing now. Uh, you're solving, you're using some of the same tools and techniques to solve problems for different industries at the same time. And I don't even think I fully 
explored what other industries that we we could be involved in. You know, that's that's something I've been spending time thinking about recently. But it it's it it definitely keeps me engaged. There's always a new problem to solve. There's always uh, new technology. We started getting into AI. You mentioned the chat. GPT, we started doing uh, uh, large language model integrations into training products that, that are trained on uh, DOD data sets, and the potential there is pretty immense. Um, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting and a little bit scary, too. You alluded to the machines taking over. I don't know. Jury's out on that. <laughs> so, Chris, talk about what's what's next for the business. Where, where do you want to keep taking this? Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we've primarily been a, a service company, and we've we've built a, a really strong team with a lot of experience. We're working on pretty high tech subjects that that I do believe are actually next gen or cutting edge. Although everybody seems to use that term, um, I think for this, I think we would like to transition our business model to being primarily centered around products developing and selling products. And uh, some of the conversations that I've been having recently have been about um, seeking seeking investments for, you know, to, to build certain products that I have ideas for that I think are going to become important in the next five years. Um, so that's that's kind of a large topic of discussion and what, where we've set some of our goals for this year, start moving in that direction. Nice. I like it. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been an extremely interesting and entertaining story and conversation. Your uh, your journey is is all over the place, which I think is incredible, right? The amount of things you've experienced along the way. Uh, it, it's something people should try to emulate. Well, like I said a little bit earlier, I just thank God for for bringing me through it all. I mean, there's a, there were a lot of times where I could have just fallen flat on my face, but it never happened. So, Thank you, God, for that. <laughs> so where can we send people to check you out, check the company out, anything like that? Um, yeah, well, I guess our, our website is vigilante.us, V-I-G-I-L-A-N-T-E.us. Perfect. Gary, anything else? No, this, is, <laughs> this has been so fun. I, I Like, I... You're the first microbiologist that I know that has be, been an art director and CEO of a tech company that's serving the DOD as well as the entertainment. Like it's just, and then had a crypto mining company where your your machines were seized as part of you know, the the U.S. sanctions. Like, wow, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, uh, I love your quote about. Um, Sometimes I feel like I'm living someone else's dream. Oh man, <laughs> you know that. But you've you've maintained uh, a quiet humility, and uh, just a there is a there is a calmness about you that is unescapable. And I, I I'm not sure that it comes through on the audio, but probably does. But when you meet with you in person or even on video, uh, there's just this quiet steadiness that is is really beautiful and so um i love how you're uniquely crafted and and how you're using your gifts and the fact that you um you know in your core values you've talked about 
you know, being humane. <laughs> you know, it's like we need a whole lot more of that out there, business owners. And and we that's why we try to feature the people that we do that have some humility that are really trying to do that because a lot of people will lump that don't know better. They lump entrepreneurs or uh, capitalism as in greed. And that has been completely counter to my experience with the people that are really doing it right. Yeah. And there are people that are greedy and all full of themselves and are narcissists, et cetera, and nasty people you don't want to work for them anyway. But there are a lot of people that are really trying to do it right. And the fact that you have even given people a month off at time, like rest, intentional rest and taking time off, like, man, those two things alone, those are difference makers. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for being an example, because I know people that listen to this are taking notes and going, hmm, that's pretty simple. We probably need to emphasize that a little more. Hmm. Yeah, I... I think it comes back to, I mean, I guess we're about to launch into another discussion, but I, I think it comes back to the idea of priorities. Uh, if yeah. your if your priorities are are well aligned, you're going to value th the state of your people, their health over, you know, the, the company's success. And um, I know that that could sound a little controversial, but in, in my opinion, you know, I would walk away. We we talk sometimes in the company a little bit about identity. Like don't 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 conflate who you are with what you do. You are not project manager for vigilante. That is not who you are. And even I, like maybe I shouldn't say this on an open channel, but even I would walk away from the company if I if I felt that it was causing me to to have misaligned priorities with regards to my family. Hmm. I would. I because I did that once before and I'm not gonna put my my family threw that again. My wife threw that again. Man, I love that. That You just brought the thing right back to full circle because mm -hmm. the beginning of this thing, you talked about alignment and priorities. That's what you really wanted to be known for. And and uh, the don't conflate what you do with who you are. Whew, that is some that is some PhD level depth right there, man. <laughs> so good job. All right, thanks. 